Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its story and themes, and then judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. And this is the second of what will probably be three episodes devoted to Floamana Saga. Yes, it is. Uh, we'd hope to cover this in two episodes, but honestly, there's too much going on in this saga, and honestly, we were both sick last time we recorded, and we maybe weren't moving as fast as we might have. Oh, God, we sounded sick last time. Did we? Uh, if you had any idea how many coughs and sneezes I edited out of that episode, <laughs> well, I knew it would we didn't blow your mind. Well. That's all in the past. It's all in the past. It We're fit as fiddles now. Yes. Hail is a winter storm. In rude good health, in fact. Yes, all very nice. And we are finally to the heart of this saga, where the real action is. Uh, you could say that. Uh, but before we jump into the action, we need to recap what happened in the first part of the saga. Mm, great idea. Now, this saga jumps around a lot, so mm-hmm. uh, I think a refresher would be helpful. Let's yes. do this. All right. Last time on Flomana Saga. We enjoyed a series of ripping yarns about the ancestors of Thorgil Scarlake's stepson. Our story began when Thorgil's great-great-grandfather, Atli the Slender, was given control of Norwegian lands in Sol. When he played the Weisenheimer and refused to give the lands back to King Harald Fairhair, Atli was killed by Harald's allies. Atli's descendants have all kept a sharp eye peeled for any chance of regaining those lands. But in the meantime, they've been finding one creative way after another to come a cropper. From battles to shipwrecks to brawls. Frankly, it's amazing any of them lived long enough to produce offspring. I agree. Finally, we come to Thorgils, whose problem child antics and casual cruelty to animals marks him out as a man to watch. Though he's only 16 when he makes his debut as a sailing man, he puts on his glad rags and cuts a fine figure in the court of King Harald Greycloak and his overbearing mother, Gunild. Like his forefathers, he's focused on reclaiming the Sornlands. But with that able Greybull Queen Gunhild squatting on his estates, he comes up empty-handed. He tries again when King Haugen comes to the throne. And while Haugen is willing to consider the matter, he wants proof that Thorgils is hard-boiled. As we return to the story, Thorgils and his friend Thorstein the White are off to the Hebrides. Off to the Hebrides. <laughs> Thorgils and his friend Thorstein the White are off to the Hebrides. And points beyond, where adventure and danger await. It, it kills me that we still do the up to, fingers up to the ear thing. I mean, how could you do the voice without your finger at your ear? I don't... That's what triggers the nasal, the nasal voice. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Somehow... So that's where we left off, with Thorgils yeah. about to set off on his tribute-collecting run to the Hebrides for Hauken. Right. And with Thorstein the White, an actual red shirt-wearing Norwegian companion along for the ride. All right. So what's in store for Thorgils and company this time out? Oh, I mean, is that it? We're not... Yeah, what? Well, I thought we might chat about the saga for just a minute. I'm sorry, did you have something important to say? Well, not really important. I just thought <laughs> we could maybe commiserate a bit about how awful this saga truly uh, is. Now, Andy, let's not be hasty. You can save your subjective analysis for the final ratings. But can I say just one thing? What is it? Well, I really wish this saga had a better narrator, honestly. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah, well, this time I agree with Jonas Christensen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this author couldn't narrate his way out of a Dick and Jane book. What is this thing? <laughs> All right, cool your jets. I said you could say one thing. You've said it. Now you're expanding on that one thought. But I... Nope. Save it for the judgments. Now hit that button. 
what happened to Thorgil's Scarlake stepson was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of adventures an Icelander could face. Deadly duels with berserks and madmen. An eerie encounter with a silent army of Stocksteel soldiers waiting in an earth hall. A hammer-wielding god hella-bent on reclaiming Thorgil's devotion by any means necessary. And then a shipwreck on the inhospitable shores of Greenland where the dead rise from the grave and good men go stark raving mad. There, Thorgils will contend with starvation, murder, theft, and an infant son with no mother to care for him. This is a saga that is just as real, just as close, just as terrifying as living it. Even if Thorgil survives, what will be left? Floamana Saga! After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. This section is where Floamana Saga really does come into its own. In raw narrative potential? Sure. Execution? Not so much. You are really not selling the bacon here. Uh, no. This, this is the most action-packed and interesting section of the saga. This is where Flo Saga makes its bones. Not just in body count, but in reputation. Uh, bones, body count, I get it. But reputation, you say? What do you mean? Well, you might be shocked to hear this, but there was a late 19th century retelling of part of this saga. No, there wasn't. Get yeah, out of here. It was in French, uh, but translated to English. The title is... The Voyage of Thorgils and His Adventures on the East Coast of Greenland in about the year 1000. <laughs> That's a mouthful of a title, but uh, that is the uh, the section we're going to talk about today. Oh yes, uh, as we'll see, the saga breaks out into a grim sort of swashbuckling adventure narrative at this point. Uh, after a, what I have to call a bit of a meandering start to the narrative, the author really kicks things into gear with those battles against the undead that we saw at the end of our last episode. Mm-hmm. You can see why a modern version of the story would be tempted to just start there. Now, we, we can quibble with that date of about a year 1000 in the, the lengthy title there, but, you know, based on the death of Harold Greycloak last episode, this saga is probably still a couple decades shy of the year 1000. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, this is a pretty clear sign that we're heading into the adventure part of the saga. Okay, but that date is important. As we were hinting in the preview, this saga has a real focus on the conversion to Christianity and on the mm-hmm. consequences of conversion. Placing the conversion of Thorgils before the conversion of Iceland, even by a decade, would make this a very different story than if it's right around 1000. Sure, but we've established that this saga's author just isn't all that interested in historical dates and careful chronology, or even of careful narrative plotting. Ouch. He was definitely busy doodling cartoons of fast horses and kick-ass longships with flames (laughs) coming out the sides during during history class. (laughs) And, And as we'll see... Uh, he does explicitly say that Christianity arrives in Iceland at the same time as Thorgil's conversion. Right. So he just chops a couple of decades out of his narrative in order to make those pieces fit. Right. Well, the conversion narrative is still important to this part of the saga. But yeah, we have to think of it as being more a story for a Christian audience of the 14th century, really divorced from any meaningful historical context. Absolutely. All right. Uh, are we ready to set sail? Sound the horns and raise the sails. It's time to get underway. To the Hebrides and beyond! Part 5. You duel that voodoo that you duel so well. (laughs) So, Thorgils and Thorstein the White are traveling light for this trip. 
They're bringing two ships and only a small crew. Now, we said last time, this is a tough mission. Halkin has sent them to collect tribute from people who haven't paid up in three years. So not Mm -hmm. an easy deal. Two ships seems a little underwhelming for this job. Well, absolutely, this is a problem. Uh, When they arrive in the Hebrides, they spend the summer asking around for tribute, but they don't get much, and no one seems terribly worried about them. Yeah, that was kind of predictable. Yeah, it was. And just to make things worse, they're caught in bad weather off the coast of Caithness in northern Scotland, and their ships go to smash on the rocks. They survive the wrecks, but lose even the paltry tribute they've managed to squeeze out of the locals. See, that was less predictable, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, did, did Thorstein, the Norwegian companion, die at this point? No, he's fine. Wow. Uh, his red shirt is a little waterlogged, but he's okay. Well, it's, it's actually amazing. <laughs> so, I feel like we've been here before. Didn't we have a couple of shipwrecks in the first part of the saga? Hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of a pattern there. Yeah, yeah. Remember, Thorgil's great-grandfather, Halston Atlason, managed to wreck his ship as he was sailing into Iceland. He's mm-hmm. the one who was less competent at navigating than the uh, the wooden pillars that he'd thrown overboard, remember? Yep. Yeah, the high sea pillars that made it to shore yeah. safely. Uh, and Thorgil's father, Thor, disappeared at sea and was never heard from again. Mm-hmm. We can probably assume that voyage didn't end well either. Yeah, what's never heard from again sort of implies that it didn't go well. Yeah. So Thorgil's is just upholding a fine family tradition by being hopeless at sea travel. I suppose that's a way to look at it, yes. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for Thorgil's and his friends... There's a generous earl in Caithness named Olaf who invites the entire crew to stay with him for the winter. That's so sweet. Uh, yeah, but they aren't there for long before a problem arises. So can we uh, can we talk a minute about this whole setting that we've got here? Sure. It's not like there's a whole saga to cover or anything. Oh, John, we're just doing a portion tonight anyway. So, <laughs> uh, No, I just want to talk about why these late 10th century Scandinavian tax collectors are finding a sympathetic and very Norwegian-sounding Earl Olaf in Caithness. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Well, I mean, Caithness itself, the name, is probably a good place to start. Uh, The region has two names, depending on who's talking about it. The Norse peoples called it Caithness, with uh, Caith referring to a group of Pictish or Scots peoples living there, and Ness being the usual Old Norse word for a sticky out bit of land, (laughs) uh, like Rekjaness or Snaffelsness in Iceland. Uh, So the headland of the Picts, or something like that, is what's meant by Caithness. But the Gaelic version of the name, which I will undoubtedly be butchering, is Gaelahi, uh, which means land of the Norse. Okay. So so what you're saying is that both sides think of this as a place controlled by the other side. Right. Uh, sort of. <laughs> That's kind of. There's a lot of dispute in this period about who exactly owns the area. Yeah. Uh, with both the Scots and the Orkney Earls laying claim to it. Yeah. Well, this is one of those historically specific moments in the saga. The mm-hmm. Norwegians who settled in Caithness are part of the same wave that eventually creates political areas like the Orkneys, but also leads to the Battle of Clontarf in 1014 when the Celtic and Norse peoples were fighting for dominance of Ireland. Right, now, if you've been listening for a while, you might remember the Battle of Clontarf as the strange interlude toward the end of Njal's saga. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and in Orkneyinga saga, Caithness is one of the regions claimed by Thorfinn the Mighty in the 11th century. And we could mm-hmm. go into the archaeology of the region as well, but... again. Again, an entire saga to get to here. Hmm. You don't want to hear about my uh, visit to the museum in Dublin? Were they? No? All right. <laughs> if you if you must, then fine. But we need to, uh, we need to get moving. All right. So Maybe We'll do a special episode sometime about your trip to the museum. Nah, no need. Uh, but uh, the upshot <laughs> is that the evidence of extensive Norse settlement in the area is clear. 
Mm-hmm. So Earl Olaf, and you could go and see some of the evidence of that at the museum in Dublin, by the way. Oh, did you by any chance go to that museum? I went to the National Museum and I thought it was a wonderful place. I could have spent... There you go. Do you want to hear more? I've I've been there myself, actually, but uh, we can we can chat about it sometime. Well, for those air. who haven't been, I highly recommend it. Oh, dear. Uh, but whatever I was saying. Uh, Earl Olaf. <laughs> I was talking about Earl Olaf. He may be... You were. <laughs> Earl Olaf may be only semi-historical, but his position in Kate Ness makes a great deal of sense. That's what I was trying to we say. We really... I mean, I, I was kind of joking, but we really should spend an episode on Hiberno-Norse story at some point. Yeah, and, and I should be getting eight hours of sleep a night and regular exercise, but I'm a chubby beer-drinking <laughs> okay. fool. So right now, we should... <laughs> uh, well, the, the semi-historical Earl Olaf, as it happens lives with his semi-historical sister named Gudrun, who's described as a splendid woman and well-endowed with womanly arts. No, you did that wrong. It should be well-endowed with womanly arts. (laughs) Uh, If you want to impregnate a pause, you go ahead and do it. (laughs) I see what you did there, you naughty boy, you. Uh, The point is that she's an impressive woman. And unfortunately, she's caught the eye of a local wild man and Viking named Sirt Ironskull. Sirt Ironskull. Truly a great name. Now, why is he a wild man? Now, that's literal. He's not a party animal. He's, he's been living rough in the area, and he seems almost feral. Hmm. Uh, he's also got a reputation as a berserk. And he's got his crazy eyes on the lovely Gudrun. He does. And uh, Sirt has an M.O. of abducting women he finds attractive. A charming swain, if ever there was one. <laughs> so he just walks into the Earl's home and tries to abduct Gudrun, right? Well, not quite. He walks into the Earl's home and says, uh, want your sister. Maybe as a mistress, but maybe as a wife. I haven't decided yet. I don't think that's an exact quote, but <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> that seems to me to be of little benefit, even if you did your best to be worthy of the match. And since you're determined to be an evil man, I like it even less. Hmm. Well, you can either fight me in a duel or gather your men to fight mine. It's better to die in honor than to live in shame, I say. Hmm? Well, you've chosen poorly, and you'll not forget it. If you don't show up, you're a coward. I'll certainly show up. Or else some other man will show up in my place. <laughs> <laughs> you see, he was doing so well there. Yeah. But Olaf definitely loses bravado <laughs> points for adding that little caveat at the end. Yeah, well, he, he does have a trick knee. You see, he'd love right. to fight, but what can you right. do? Yeah, he's got bone spurs. Yeah, um, it's the humidity. Well, I mean, you know, if you, if, you're, if you need to, you can always try to maneuver your large and well-muscled house guest into lending a hand. Great idea. So that's exactly what happens. Olaf yep. calls an assembly and offers to give Guthrun in marriage to any man who will duel to protect her from Sirt and survive, of course. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of murmuring and uh, foot shuffling, but no one <laughs> no one really steps up. Yeah, yeah, no. Sorry, did you say this guy's a berserk named Iron Skull? <laughs> no, thank you. Well, that's fine, yes. Uh, yeah, the day is <laughs> saved when Thorstein the White, our Norwegian companion, raises his hand and bravely volunteers. Oh, that poor, brave, doomed Norwegian companion. Yeah, but let, let's see who he volunteers how it all works out. Mm. Let's see how this plays out. Thorstein raises his hand and bravely volunteers Thorgils for the job. 
Oh. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gotta say, Thorstein is turning out to be a slightly craftier Norwegian companion than I was expecting. Yes, he is. We'll have to keep an eye on this one. All right. So, meanwhile, Thorgils is now committed to fighting a man named Surt Ironskull. And Great. the night before the duel, he has a dream of his friend Alvin. Now, this is Alvin Guðason, yes? The the guy whose mother rose from her coffin and had to be wrestled onto her funeral pyre. That's right. That's the one. And as thanks for helping with that little chore, Alvin gave Thorgils a red shirt, which has uh-huh. since been given to Thorstein the White, and a sword, right. which is what this dream is actually about. Okay. We'll let the saga author explain. Alvin came to him in his dream and said, You shall go to the duel with the berserk, because it will gain you honor. He's not a ghost. It's just a dream. <laughs> he's a he's an ephemeral, dreamlike character. <laughs> oh, just go Carry with on. Him. Carry on. But this man, Sirt, is my brother, though he's no use to me. He is the greatest of evildoers. Whenever he duels, he asks his... Shh, quiet. Whenever he duels, he asks his opponent whether he has the sword Blautnir. That's the sword I gave to you. I know this is getting lengthy, but stick with me. <laughs> you, you must hide it in the sand and tell him you do not know that its hilt is above ground. Uh, this, is, this is so problematic. Yes. With what, though? The sword hidden in the dirt? No, I, I mean, that's ridiculous, but it's run-of-the-mill weirdness for a named sword. Remember uh, Cormac's sil- sword with the snake in the hilt? Yes, yes. The sword with the rules about not exposing the blade to sunlight <laughs> mm-hmm. and letting a tiny snake slither up and down the blade before the duel. The yes. what-will-sorcerers-think-of-next sword, which is one that I liked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, that was some weird hoplology. Now, I'm talking well, about the apparent level... Hold on, tro- hold on, hold on, yes. hold on. We have... Yes. People listening from all around the globe here, and you just said hoplology as if everyone understands what that is. I did. Do you care to expand on that? Do I have to? Do you know what hoplology is? Or you just. It's the science that studies human combative behavior. There you go. Continue. <laughs> so it's uh, like the hoplites, right? We're a kind of warrior. Um, so, yes, hoplology. So studying the rules that govern combat. So the rules that govern these swords. I thought that was the appropriate term. The senator may continue. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much. You yield the floor, do you? Yes. Uh, now, I'm talking about the apparent level of trope mixing that's going on in the story. We've got a special sword. An unlikely, but I suppose plausible family connection between two figures. A couple of staggering coincidences bringing Thorgils and his sword into contact with Alden's brother. The dream vision element. I mean, it can go on and on. This author's love of Frankensteining together a story out of stock parts... It's beginning to feel like a deliberate undercutting of the narrative structure. <clears throat> I won't comment on that because I was told to save it, but that is the structure. <laughs> I, I know, and that's bothering me because I don't know whether the saga is trying to get the remarkable pastiche effect it's creating. It's bordering on self-parody, but does it know that? I have things to say about that. <laughs> Well, we I'll say this. We know that the sagas are more than capable of referencing and iterating levels of self-consciousness about their narrative conventions. This is something we can probably come back to during the Judgments episode, and we will, because this is not doing a good job of it. But for now... <laughs> okay, okay. So if you're not going to be sidetracked into a discussion of the literary consciousness of our author, let's, uh, let's go ahead and have a duel. All right. Well, in the morning, 
Thorgils and Thorstein go to the dueling place, and sure enough, Surt Ironskull asks, Say, you don't have by any chance have the magical sword <laughs> bled near about your person, do you? Wait, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, why... How, how did this suddenly become sling blade? <laughs> Some folks call it a Kaiser blade. I call it a blad near. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor little feller. I did not know that it... I do not know that its hilt is above ground. Well, that doesn't strike me as suspicious answer in any way. Hey. <laughs> He's very breathy. Hey, what? what are you doing in the sand there? That the- what? Oh, nothing. Uh, all right, let's duel. <laughs> we should have we should have let us continue the same voice as we were doing before. Well, we, that- can, we, can, we can flip this around if you prefer. No, nah, no, nah, that was fine. I think sling blade appearances are always good. All right. Now, yeah, this is a really strange bit. So Thorgils pulls the sword out of the sand, and the duel begins. The two men are evenly matched, and the battle goes on for quite a while. But then Thorgils makes a lucky swing that cuts away both the bottom of Surt's shield and one of his legs. Oh. Well, I mean, that seems fairly final. Well, no, you'd think so. But the author breaks in at this point to say that, according to the rules for this duel, the winner can take the loser's property if the loser is killed. So ah. Thorgils chops off Surt's head. Oh. I mean, given that he killed his stepfather's horse once just to get into a ball game, I guess this isn't surprising, but wow. Yeah. I mean, everyone's okay with that, though. I mean, no one likes mm-hmm. Surt very much. It's acceptable. Sure. Um, even his brother Alvin gave Thorgils advice on how specifically... To get him vulnerable and kill him. <laughs> right. Although, I gotta say, Alvin better watch out. I mean, Thorgils now has burned Alvin's mother and executed his brother. He seems to have a bit of a thing about this family. Right. Okay, so do you remember what the stipulations were for the duel? What did Thorgils just win for his troubles? Well, I mean, he's probably going to lose this sword, for one thing. Uh, Alvin told him he was only going to have Blaudner for a while, and then it would be replaced by another weapon. Okay, and... Wasn't there... Oh, um, um, he gets to marry Olaf's sister Gudrun. Yes, that's the whole... No one's checked in with her about this yet, have they? No, I mean, what does that matter, really? I mean, you know, <laughs> Middle Ages, what do they... You know, don't know. Don't ask a woman sure. what she thinks. Now, of course, they haven't actually asked Thorgils either if he's into this connection. Right, true. And there's a hint in the text that Thorgils might not have desired this marriage. Yeah, it's almost as if uh, Thorstein got one look at that woman who was like, uh-huh. Yes! <laughs> Well, I think we'll, yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, when Thorgils and Thorstein are talking about whether to fight Surt and win Gudrun's hand, Thorstein thinks it's a good deal, and Thorgils, quote, found little to recommend it. Yeah, which includes the marriage. Absolutely. Andy, you're the expert on marriage consent in the sagas. How does this stack up? I mean, it's at least implied that neither one of them especially wants this wedding to take place. Yeah, well, hang on to that thought, and we'll get to it. Um, but for now, in the spring, mm-hmm. Thorgils and Thorsten return to the Hebrides at the head of a small fleet of ships, which now include the ships formerly owned by Surt Ironskull. There were also a few more, which are filled with Olaf supporters. Thorgils is actually building up a fairly impressive fleet here. I think at some point, we have to start calling him an admiral or something. Mm, well, I'm not clear about the ranking system in uh, Viking Age uh, Norway, but mm-hmm. uh, he's at least a commandant. Right. right. And, and if I know anything about Thorgils, he'll just crash most of them anyway. <laughs> so That's a fair point. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, this time, their method for collecting tribute is a little more direct. 
You could say that, yes. I did say that. Uh, <laughs> you could also say that they threatened to destroy the land of anyone who doesn't pay the required money. Yeah. Here, uh, yeah, they gave people there the choice of suffering plunder and death or paying the tribute to Earl Halkin. <laughs> well, that is pretty direct. And if, if you're wondering about how tribute really works, uh, watch the second season of Norseman when Arvid goes <laughs> to a farm to uh, explain the whole system to uh, a wealthy farmer. It's, it's quite quite funny and very accurate. Um, mm. But it works. Everyone pays up and Thorgils and Thorsten return to Hauken with ships full of money and gifts. Well, that's great. I mean, it's a little rough on the Hebridians, but ah. it's great for Thorgils. But why, why do you think it's great for Thorgils? Well, now he can return to his obsession with the family lands in Saul. Mm. Maybe try to sneak it into conversation with Hauken. Well, he, he... Well, not right away, of course. I mean, you know, subtly, over the course of a few well, weeks, But maybe. I think... I th- well, I mean, the family's been trying to get these lands back for five generations. There's no need to rush, well, he, he right? He gives them the land. Wait. Wait, what? Just, just gives it to him? <laughs> no, he just hands it over as soon as they step off the boat. Unbelievable. I mean, this is really unbelievable. I know. The first third of the saga built this up as the the the, the raison d'être of the saga, or at least the family obsession. That's the whole saga. Yeah. The first yeah. episode, John. I just want to make this clear. Yeah. We built the whole saga around. That's all there was to talk about. <laughs> and now, and now it's just. Oh, you mean this land? Oh, here. Sorry. Yeah. So bad narration. <laughs> so <laughs> now that Thorgils has everything he's ever wanted. What's he going to do with the rest of his life? Maybe settle down? Well, he'd make a wonderful Dread Pirate Roberts. Part 6. One Summer in Ireland. I I like it. I mean, you're getting your your obligatory Princess Bride reference in, and it's been a Mm -hmm. while since we've done that. But uh, what's Thorgil's actually going to do now? I was only kind of kidding. I mean, he's, he's already been a ship's captain and a commander or admiral or whatever. I'm pretty sure Dread Pirate Roberts is the next rank up. See, I see I'm guessing you you you've never been in the Navy or the Coast Guard. Nope. No. Uh, but I'm right about Thorgils. Oh. Uh, he and Thorsten are going to take their fleet raiding around Ireland for the summer. Yeah, this has the feel of another set piece being queued up. Oh yes. Uh, but hang on. Because this author is piling up the saga clichés at this point. Before they can set out on their Irish gap year adventure, <laughs> Thorgils has to catch up on his beauty rest. Oh. And while he's napping, He's visited by Alden again. So this is Alden, brother of the late Sirt Ironskull. Son of the late Gutha. Uh, yep. Yeah, he spends a lot of time showing up in Thorgil's dreams. What? Well, he's got important things to tell him. How does he? He's this alive. Time, How do you even show up in a man's dreams when you're alive and actually deliver it, messages? It does seem like a problem, doesn't and it? And if you had that power, John, wouldn't you just deal with your own dead mother? <laughs> How does appearing in her dreams help you? <laughs> Stop haunting me. <laughs> uh, so this time, uh, Alvin's telling Thorgils that it's time to give back the magic sword, Blautner. Oh. Uh, but he, he gives him a gold he. ring as consolation and promises that Thorgils will soon have an even better sword in its place. And when Thorgils wakes up, the sword is gone! <gasps> Ooh, you said that like it was supposed to be spooky. Well, it's a bit surprising! <laughs> Uh, no, at, at this point, uh, Thorgils is probably getting used to Alvin dropping by in his dreams. Uh, and it's not like this is the only nocturnal visitor he's going to have. <laughs> 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 
you you're so dirty. <laughs> why are you? I didn't, I didn't realize how bad that sounded. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. I don't get it. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> your laughing is a is a very telling emission. I mean admission. Oh, jeez. <laughs> And it's not like this is the only nocturnal visitor he's going to have. There's a, there's a big dream cameo coming up in a couple of chapters. A dream cameo? Aren't all appearances in dreams sort of cameos, though, if you think about it? Silence! Uh, so all, not, all right. Uh, we've left Thorgils and Thorsten waiting long enough. They, they set sail for Ireland and have a very successful summer raiding all around the area. Yes, and they've got a new friend. Early in the summer, they meet another group of ships led by a Viking named Gurt. Now, they form a partnership, and for the entire summer, they're the kings of the Irish Seas. They're oh. raiding and plundering other raiders and groups of thieves and not really bothering the local farmers and traders. Ah, uh, yes, this old chestnut. Uh, we saw this with Gunnar Hamundersen in Njal Saga, and I think Bjorn the Hitterdahl champion did this kind of thing, too. When an author wants to talk about how successful a Viking is, but you know, doesn't want to disapprove... We hear about how he spends the summer robbing other Vikings. Yeah, it's not quite Robin Hood, though. He, he's stealing from the crooks, but he's keeping it for himself. Well, I mean, he's splitting the take with Gerd's fleet, but yeah. Uh, and there's a weird interlude in Ireland. One day... Oh, is, it, is this the, the dead tree story? Yeah, did you want to explain this? Well, if you let me, yeah, sure, I would love to. Sure. So the crews put ashore one day, and they find a weird-looking dead tree... And as one does, they will uproot the tree and find an entrance to an underground dwelling. Okay, now the original Norse calls this a yarthus, or an earth house, mm -hmm. uh, which can mean a couple of things. I mean, it can mean a grave, or a passage to an underworld, or just a house in the ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this case, it's definitely <coughs> tending toward the supernatural. They look inside and see men inside holding weapons. Yeah, just standing in there. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. So Thorsten makes a deal with all of the assembled men that whoever goes into the hole can keep the treasures they find in there. And so Thorgils and Thorsten jump down into the hollow, but the armed men inside don't do anything. Just standing there. Yeah, just sta hanging out. They look around and, and they see a black cloth with a pair of gold rings and a sword laid on it. And back behind that is two women... One older and one younger. This is starting to feel like a Dungeons and Dragons scenario. Can I can I check for traps? You should check for traps, but you cannot. No. So Thorgils <laughs> and Thorsten take the sword. They roll the die. <laughs> no. So Thor mm -hmm. Thorgils and Thorsten take the sword. Natural twenty. <laughs> so Thorgils and Thorsten take the sword, the rings, and the women with them. Ah. They're halfway back to the shore when the group of men come chasing them out of the woods. They leap into their ships. Well, better late than never. And they sail away from shore. But the leader of the men on shore shouts after them in a long speech. Sure, but but this is in Ireland. Uh, so quite okay. reasonably, he's shouting in his own language, presumably Irish, mm -hmm. and none of the Vikings can understand what he's saying. Yes. Well, fortunately, there is an interpreter available. The older woman says in Norse, He's saying that you can keep all the wealth you've taken if you let us go. That man is an earl, and he is my son. If you let us go, he'll reward you. And if you don't, that sword you took will be cursed. You know, 
the ability to curse swords is a little known fringe benefit of an earldom. Oh, it's so you, you get a you get a defensible mountain fastness, a hogshead of mead thrice per annum, and the ability to curse stolen weapons. Apparently, mm, hogshead of mead. Don't lose focus. Speaking of which, I have some mead downstairs. I might go get it in a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> Don't lose focus mm, between sections. But uh, yeah, there's not that much more to report. And remember, Thorgils is being very good. He's a good Viking. Mm-hmm. Now he returns the two women to the shore, at which point he is given three more gold rings and allowed to leave with the rest of the treasure, including... Right. Including the sword. Yes. Uh, and this is the sword that's been promised to Thorgils in his dreams. He calls it Earth House Gift from Oh, how now terrifying. On. Oh, I know. <laughs> He's going to get a chance to try it out fairly soon. That was a fairly obvious bit of foreshadowing. Okay, but I mean, we're trying to spin a tale here. I have to foreshadow once in a while. Yeah, well. But before we get to that next part, we should point out this is yet another standard trope. A weird and slightly unnerving underground adventure that results in the protagonist gaining a named sword. Well, Sure. I mean, we've had a couple of these already. The one that immediately comes to mind is Grettir's saga, uh, when mm-hmm. Grettir gains his sword by raiding the grave mound of Car the Old, right? Right. And this is usually a grave robbing motif. We do see some other variations on the theme, like that underground living game board in the story of Thorsten Bullsleg. But it's almost always supernatural, or at least a site of religious significance, right? This one is just odd. Well, we're still getting the motifs but not the context that would normally give them meaning. Yeah, essentially, yeah, I yeah. I have to say, I enjoy the challenge this author presents. I'm a little annoyed with the saga at this point. Oh, yes. But I feel like I'm playing a trivia game of spot the decontextualized saga theme. Now, that sounds like a terrible game that we play every <laughs> month. <laughs> now, why would you play uh, why would you want to play a game like that? I, it might come in handy sometime. Uh-huh. What if I find myself on a beach someday confronted by the Grim Reaper? I'm no Spassky, Andy. <laughs> I don't think I'd have a chance in a game of chess, but I'm pretty sure I could take down death in a game of Saga Motif Trivial Pursuit. Hmm. Well, I think I'd go with Mario Kart, probably. Really? Yeah. All right. I get a first place you bomb, a, hit him. You get a turtle shell death right off yeah, the... Uh, slide into first, <laughs> unless I get a series of red shells coming at me that always... I... Very I, I, sorry, saying turtle shell ex- exhausted my knowledge of Mario Kart. I'm, I'm pretty much out of this conversation at this point. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, so, at the end of the summer, Thorgils and Thorsten want to stop raiding and share out their spoils among the ship's crews. But Gert, who wants the treasures from the Earth House, objects to Thorgils claiming those for himself. Rather than risk a general melee between the two groups of sailors, Thorgils and Gert decide to fight it out. Ah, another duel. See, mm-hmm. this is turning into a pattern for young Thorgils at this point. I don't know. Is this a duel? I mean, it's not terribly formal. The two of them agree to fight, and then they do fight. Nearly all the ritual and rules are missing. Yeah, but I think this counts. The formal duels are a conventional thing, and they reflect some kinds of ritualized combat, but there's always room for a quick one-on-one fight that, that's more in the quick-draw tradition. I think we see that all the time. Or it, mm-hmm. it, maybe it's even like a schoolyard fight, but it's a, it's a okay. let's, you and me, we're going to fight and resolve this with fisticuffs. Right. So it's a kind of duel, and it's a short one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorgils uses the sword Earthhouse Gift, and after a couple of exchanges, he strikes a, a blow low to the ground and chops off Gert's foot at the ankle. Oops. Gert survives, but he's somewhat predictably nicknamed Gert the Lame thereafter. Yes, and Thorgils keeps the treasure 
from the Earth House. Yeah. Uh, and he and Thorsten make their way back to Earl Hauken and spend the winter there with him. Uh, Hauken confirms the lands in Son now belong to Thorgils, and Thorgils, his wife Gudrun, and Thorsten the White spend the next year in Norway singing to Thorgils' new lands. See, now, Thorsten the Red Shirt, mm-hmm. Thorsten the White the Red Shirt, mm-hmm. is still alive. Yeah. It's unnerving. I mean, <laughs> I keep waiting for a piano to land on his head or something. Like, what? <laughs> no, no. He's, he's enjoying his health and all the excitement of traveling as Thorgil's Norwegian companion. Hmm. And speaking of Thorgil's, there's more good news in store for him. His wife, Gudrun, has given birth to a son named Thorleif. Hooray! Huzzah! <laughs> a sixth generation of the family for us to keep track of. I hope he has <laughs> 20 children. Well, um, I gotta say, Thorgils isn't too bothered about the next generation, so I don't know that we have to be all that worried about it either. Ah. Uh, Shortly after the child's birth, he decides to leave for Iceland, which is fine, but he leaves a few things behind, including his wife and son. (laughs) uh, And Thorsten the White. Yeah, well, there's probably a better way to phrase that. Because... Okay, Uh, he gives his wife... To Thorsten the White. Yeah. See, this is kind of remarkable. (laughs) And he's the luckiest Norwegian companion that ever has existed. Apparently, Thorgils has noticed that Thorstein is in love with Gudrun. Yeah. And nothing inappropriate has gone on, of course. But since Thorgils himself has been pretty lukewarm on the whole Gudrun marriage thing, although he did obviously consummate it, uh, he decides to pass her along to his Norwegian companion, Thorsten. Right. There's, there's there's so much that needs to be questioned here. Uh, <laughs> briefly, are we supposed to understand that Gudrun has approved this move? No, you don't ask her. Is she in love with Thorsten? Doesn't matter. How well does this reflect a possible marriage practice of the 10th century? Fairly common. Uh, is there any way this doesn't hurt the public honor of all three people involved? No chance. And what was the author's point in telling this story this way? Uh, <laughs> that last one is a very good question because <laughs> none of it makes sense. Those are all very legitimate, but uh, they're mostly narrative issues. And as we've said, a better narrator would have done a better job mm-hmm. with all of this. <laughs> but this is clearly an author with a limited interest in things like marriage, consent, and Gudrun is, yeah. Gudrun is little more than a, an object, a piece of property that Thorgils can give away to a friend who admires it. So it's dehumanizing is what you're saying. I mean, that's what it comes to, isn't it? But that's uh, not necessarily Maybe. what the author intends. Uh, I mean, it, it obviously is dehumanizing. But that doesn't seem to be, as you say, it's not a deliberate point to the narrative, right? It's, it's sort of an accidental byproduct of the situation. Yeah. I, I think we're supposed to see this as evidence of Thorgil's magnanimity. Absolutely, yes. Remember that when Thorgils took on the challenge of representing Gudrun's brother Olaf against Sir Iron Skull, he initially didn't want to get involved. Yeah, he thought that the plan had little to recommend it, right? Mm-hmm. And and that was after he learned that he'd be offered Earl the Earl's sister in marriage for the job, which is a great prize. But again, exactly. the woman is he, a prize. Hmm? Right. But he wasn't interested in that prize. Right. He changes his mind because Thorsten speaks up and was egging him on. Yes. Thorsten's interest in that situation, I think, is definitely affected by the fact that Gudrun's hand in marriage is being offered as a prize to the man who kills Surt. So, I mean, are you saying that Thorgils wins the fight and the right to marry Gudrun as a proxy for Thorsten? That he anticipates this I, eventual... Maybe? Uh, I mean, it's an unusual way of wooing a woman. You have to admit that. <laughs> now, well. 
uh, I should be clear. I'm not saying this is a good idea, <laughs> even within the story's cultural context. Uh, Thorgils is essentially abdicating the life he's built for himself at this point. His wife, his child, the land in Son that he's spent five generations trying to get back. He's giving it all over to his friend in order to embark on a new set of adventures free of encumbrances. Oh, I don't even I don't even want to contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. How messed up that is from a narrative perspective. <laughs> yeah. But it is also somewhat appalling as human behavior. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. Uh, I, it's it's maybe not as nefarious as uh, Boo Andredson uh, abandoning his wife Olaf in Kalmasinga Saga. But in that instance, there's a cultural kind of move being made there. Sure. Here, it's just for narrative convenience. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but if there's any consolation. We mm-hmm. at least here have the possibility that Thorstein and Gudrun are happier together. Right. And if you're right, which I'm not necessarily conceding because I never would. <laughs> but if you are on some weird off chance wow. thing. Wow. Uh, then the whole thing was a roundabout way of getting those two together anyway. Well, again, that's a possible reading. But okay. Thorgill sails out of Norway. But his trip home is a bit meandering. He stops for a while in Sweden and stays with a farmer named Thrand. Now, Andy, stop me if you've heard this one before. Thrand has a daughter named Sigrid, <laughs> and Sigrid has caught the attention of a brutal warrior named Randvid. What a clever narrator we have. Uh-huh. There's a distinct pattern developing here. Let me guess. Randvid challenges Thrand to a duel, and Thorgils agrees to fight on his behalf. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, Oren Falk's article on the duels in the Atlantic Sagas is a great resource generally. Uh, we should link to that in the show notes somewhere, by the way. Yeah, on the internet. Somewhere. Uh, yeah, that's a good place. I'm ignoring your tone, by the way. Uh, the point is that in Falk's essay, he discusses there are six fulfilled duels in this saga and another two unfulfilled duels. Uh, in some ways, they're quite repetitive, as you say. But this one is a bit unusual. It's a... It is a Kerganga. A Kerganga? That yep. means a keg duel. Yeah, a keg duel. A keg duel. This is the only time in all of saga literature that this word shows up. It's a hotbox legomenon. That's what I was uh, thinking. A, it's, definitely- it's a critical term. I was about to say, it's a critical term from the Greek, Greek meaning something said once. Oh. I assumed I had to explain that one. What is it again? Uh, hotbox legomenon. Yeah, what, is it, what does it mean again? Oh, it means something said once. Well, you just said it twice, though. <laughs> That's dislegomenon. Oh. Something said twice. Something said twice. Ah. Uh, it's <laughs> so Falk suggests, probably correctly, that the word uh, keg duel is a kind of joke by the author. So it, it's a joke, but in the context of the story, it's a real duel fought in a keg. And the problem with yeah. this is that we need context to understand what a keg duel is exactly. Yeah. So I was trying to figure this thing out because it doesn't make any sense. And Richard Perkins has a whole article on this, but it's interesting just to contemplate the word and its possible meaning. Is it a duel using kegs? Like like you stand 20 (laughs) feet apart and throw them at each other like uh, Donkey Kong? Almost certainly not. (laughs) Is it a duel fought inside a giant keg, which is exactly what it sounds like, actually? Yeah. Is it a drinking contest? I mean... (laughs) Any of those would be fantastic, but what are we dealing with here? What is a what is a, a hotbox legomenon? Right. What is a keg duel, John? <laughs> what is a hotbox legomenon? <laughs> uh, well, 
to my great delight, this is actually explained in the text, and it's the second kind. It's a duel fought inside a giant keg. It better be a big goddamn keg if you got... Well, it's a it's a pretty big keg. Uh, it's covered over so it's dark inside while you fight. Okay, so, th- I mean, this is basically a novelty act. It's the medieval yeah. Icelandic dueling equivalent of the barbed wire cage match, only you can't see any yeah, of some- it. <laughs> right, something like that. Two men enter the keg, one man leaves. There's just a couple eye uh, holes kind of carved in yes. so that just... <laughs> You can speak so Everybody can cheer them on. The first peep uh, show. Thorgils, of course, chooses as his weapon his sword, Earthhouse Gift. And Ronvid chooses a staff, 1L long. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to, before I get into the numbers uh, here, <laughs> the first thing I want to say is we've got a keg that can fit two men, first of yep. all. Yep. And their swords, which they can then somehow wield. Yep. We said it was a big keg. It's a huge keg. It might as well be a ship-sized keg. Well, <laughs> and we, we, it certainly holds a shipload of beer. <laughs> oh, we, we talked about this a while back, though, the L, right? So an L can be between 20 and 45 inches in length, yeah. depending on when and where you are. Yes. So Rondid is fighting with a stick somewhere around the length of a yardstick. In a large keg in the dark, yes. <laughs> What? Okay. <laughs> so he's up to something, clearly, or he's got a death wish. Why would you bring a, a, a stick to a knife fight, <laughs> a sword fight? Well, um, so he's clearly up to something, and once the two men are inside the keg and it's been covered over, Rondvid invites Thorgils to make the first attack, which Thorgils does, and with a single blow, he shatters Rondvid's staff and stabs Rondvid through the belly. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Rondvid wasn't up to something. He's just very stupid. Well, he was trying to be up to something. Uh, the author tells us that Ronvid had defeated many men before with his magic. But now, with a sword in his guts, Ronvid just says, Okay, now give me the sword and you take the staff. It'll be my turn to strike. I think that's now a splinter, not a staff. And no. Your uh, your Thorgils is far more British and cultured than mine. <laughs> well, he's got him right where he wants him. It's a it's a moment to gloat. <laughs> does, he, does he take his kegs shaken, not stirred? Yes. Uh, so Ronvid dies. Obviously, yeah. uh, one more difference between this duel and the one with Sert Iron Skull is that Thorgils doesn't make any overture towards Sigrid, the woman that the duel was being fought over. He does spend the rest of the winter at their farm, but then he just sails away to Iceland by himself. Um, how big is this? I mean, it, this hasn't resolved any of my questions about the keg duel, <laughs> really. It, it's it's so confusing. Yeah. I mean, remember that, you know, keg is a kind of non-specific term, right? You can get like a hogshead, which is a couple of kegs. You get uh, even larger. You get these barrels that yeah. are, uh, that hold multiple kegs. It's possible to get up to some fairly large objects. But... Are they really climbing inside of kegs in medieval no. Norway? <laughs> it's clearly just meant as an oddity. This is, it, it's crazy. And, and, you know, you and I both, we, we because this is such an oddity, we looked into it and we, nobody, mm-hmm. I don't, nobody's really written about it that much. Well, is it just, you know, as you said, Richard Perkins has uh, yeah. talked about it, but that's about it. Um, and only there's... to say that this is a weird thing that we can't really explain, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, again, it's, you know, anytime you're dealing with a term that appears only once in a body of literature, 
uh, you're you're really limited in terms of what you can extrapolate from that. Right? Once you have two references, three references, then you can talk about the ways in which a term is being used. But when it only shows up once, what you're left with is this is a very strange moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and if there are any time travelers out there, I, I encourage you to go back, <laughs> find the author of Flow Monosaga, smack him first, and then ask him when he gets to that part about the keg duel to be a little bit more descriptive. <laughs> All right. But as far That's as... a strange little episode. Yeah. As far as his relationship to, to Ronvid and stuff like that, he, he fights mm-hmm. to rescue her and her father from Ronvid, but then he just leaves town, doesn't claim the girl, and yep. that's pretty nice of him. Good for him. He's like a superhero. He's not interested in the He's the Viking with no name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but it does... This episode was strange, but it gave us a keg duel. And for that, we can mm-hmm. always be grateful. That's the something. You, it's not the. It's not probably the image that you're going to take from this episode. Oddly enough, <laughs> which speaks amazingly. There's something coming up that's going to supplant this. Yeah. So, but we are headed back to Iceland. So, what's mm-hmm. going on in Iceland at this time? Part seven: Interlude in Iceland. So, Thorgils has been away from Iceland for several years. It's uh, time to catch up on what's been happening back home. All right. So there are two major developments. One is that Thorgil's mother, Thorun, has died. Oh, sadly. dear. His stepfather, Thorgrim Skarleg, has developed an interest in a woman named Ashild, mm-hmm. uh, the widow of a settler named Olaf Tubrows. Olaf Tubrows Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yes. He has two brows. Uh-huh. I expect a lot to be made of that in, uh, in the nickname section. Whereas most men have one brow. Right. He, on the other Olaf hand, has two. We should also call him Two Sons Jackson, since that's how many sons he has. And the older son, Helgi the Trustworthy, doesn't like Thorgrim's attentions to his mom. Well, how long has Two Sheds been gone? I mean, a certain period of mourning is only appropriate. The text just says that his interest begins after Olaf died, which does kind of sound a little a little bit quick, mm. but I'm not sure. Anyway, there, there's a big scene at Ashild's uh, house one day when Helgi gets worked up about Thorgrim's visit and tells his mom not to welcome Thorgrim anymore. It's apparent the man pleases you, mother, but I will not endure in such dishonor. There's no specific reason given for Helgi's outrage, though, is there? At this point, John, I don't remember who any of these people are. But who are they? <laughs> We've been wandering around in Norway and the Hebrides. You and- hadn't done your homework. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot going on here. But yeah, uh, Thorgrim Scarleg is the foster, the stepfather of uh, uh, Thorgils. So we didn't meet these other people before. Asil and Helgi are new. Ah, well, that explains it. I'm feeling like I need to know who they are. uh, This is a new family that's been introduced. So what I want to say here is, listeners, if you're lost, so am I. Yeah, it's perfectly all right. It's acceptable. This saga, if any saga is going to confuse people, this is the saga. So so why is Helgi so upset? I mean, Mm -hmm. either he doesn't think Thorgrim's intentions are honorable, Mm -hmm. or, or he doesn't like his mother dating a new guy when his father's mound is still freshly laid. Well, I mean, or he doesn't like the look of a retired Viking named Scarleg as a stepfather. I mean, Thorgils certainly didn't. Well, unlike Thorgils, Helgi's going to put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. He confronts Thorgrim on the way home from another visit to Asild's farm. 
Stop paying visits to our farm. And don't make trouble for yourself. Well, you're no baby. And I'm willing to test myself against your strength in any way. All right. I'd plan to make a case of it, so it's best that you and I make a trial of each other. <laughs> that's that's awful. That's that's truly awful. <laughs> because he was going to make a case of it, you see. Stop it. It's a terrible joke. Yeah. It's not my terrible joke, let right, me say. That's fair. <laughs> Blame the author. All right, so moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the two men fight, and after a hard battle, Thorgrim, who's a fairly old guy, is worn out, and Helgi is eventually able to kill him. That evening, Helgi tells his mother what he did, and she's not terribly happy about the no. situation. You think you've gained fame from this deed, but I can tell you that it will be your death. I see where he got his voice from. Well. And it's not a ringing endorsement from his mother. No. And Helgi does start planning his escape from Iceland, since he's starting to realize that if his own mother thinks he was wrong, he's probably not going to win the PR battle over this killing. I would say public relations are the least of his problems. Uh, Thorgrim has a son, Haring, who's uh, 17 years old. Yes, and this is Thorgrim's half-brother, Herring Skarlegson. Right. Uh, so Haring and his uncle, Tate Kittlebjarnason, are able to put together a group of men who outmaneuver Helgi. First, they stop him from leaving Iceland on a ship he prepared for his escape, and then they bring a crew of 15 men to attack Helgi. Helgi's caught with only two followers, and he and one of his men are killed. Yes, it all happens quite quickly. And since one of Herring's men is killed, the deaths, with Skarlake's son included, offset one another legally, and everything settles down, at least for now. And at this point, I just want to say... I was wondering to myself, oh, were you? what is the point of all of this, and how does it fit into this saga about Thorgils? Well, because this is what Thorgils is coming home to. Yes. Right? He's lost his mother, and he comes home immediately after the this whole series of deaths surrounding his, fa- his stepfather. Mm-hmm. So he visits his foster father, Loft, uh, which is where he learns about the deaths of uh, Thorin and uh, Thorgrim, and then visits his half-brother, Haring. And he and Haring begin running the family farm together. Now, those two get along all right? Sure, why? Well, Thorgils didn't exactly see eye to eye with his stepfather. Remember, he once killed his stepfather's horse. Uh-huh. And this is Scarleg's son. Nah, they're brothers. All's well between their half-brothers, I guess. You know, they're yeah. fine. Uh, besides, Thorgils isn't around much because he soon learns about a young woman named Thori Thorvard's daughter in the district. And he starts spending a lot of time visiting her. So this is going to be another family to keep track of. I'm afraid so, yes. Yeah. Thori is a young woman being fostered at her aunt's house and lives with her cousins, mm-hmm. Cole and Starkath Jostensen, and their sister, Guthrun Jostensdolter. And it's pretty obvious to everyone that Thori and Thorgils like the look of one another. And it's not long before they agree to marry. So Thorgils has wife number two now, although he didn't have to kill anyone to get this one. Right, and this is a little different. Uh, Like we said, his marriage to Gudrun Olaf's daughter was probably never meant to be permanent. Yeah, or at least he didn't think of it that way. Uh I mean, no one seems to have checked with Gudrun uh, about what she thought about the marriage. Right, that's that's very true. Um, But this is different. These two are well-matched and in love. And they've got a lot in common, which the saga doesn't actually tell us, but we can deduce it from other sources. Well, really? What? What have you been digging up there, John? 
Well, for starters, Thori and her cousins are the grandchildren of a prominent man in the district, Thord Freysgothi. Now, Grandpa Thord appears as a background figure in a few texts. He was last mentioned in uh, uh, Njal Saga on Saga Thing. In Njal Saga? Now, so, okay, hold on a second. This is Thord Freysgothi's family. Yep. From Njal Saga. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, wow, that's impressive digging yeah, on well, your part. Now, to save our listeners from absolutely not bothering to look this up, Thord Freeze Goli... Well, wait, I would recommend that they go listen to the Njal Saga episode. I mean, sure, episode. But they're not going to. <laughs> They've already listened to it once, presumably. Thord Freeze Goli was the father of Flossie Thordison, who, if you remember, was the... Uh, oh, that's the, the leader of the birders who killed Njal and his family. Yes. Yeah, these kids are the nieces and nephews of Flossie the burner? Yes. Oh, see, now this is why it matters where a saga is set in Iceland. We said in the first episode that Mm -hmm. this is set in the south, and it's one of the few that was set in the south, right? So this saga is a kind of companion piece to Njal's saga in that it's taking place in the same region around the same time, only much more poorly delivered. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can look for links between the two stories, and we can also look at the author's overall agenda and how it does or doesn't match the author of Njal. Exactly. Now, Andy, mm. can you remind us of the tale of Thorgil's family obsession? Well, up until Thorgil's, I would say his uh, the obsession was for the lands in Solm. That's exactly what I mean. So, Thori is the daughter of Thorvard, who is the son of Thord Freysgothi. Mm-hmm. Well, the Book of Settlements tells us that Thord's father, Ozur, was the son of Asbjorn Bjarnason, who emigrated from Norway to Iceland. When Asbjorn left Norway, he was fleeing a region which had come under the power of the Norwegian kings. Asbjorn was from a prominent family in Sogn. Hmm. Which means that he was probably a supporter of Earl Atli, Mm -hmm. or at least preferred Atli to Harold Fairhair, and now... Five generations later. Yeah. (laughs) The great-great-granddaughter of Asbjorn is marrying the great-great-grandson of his chieftain, Earl Atli. Hmm. I don't want to say this, but the author, at least at this point, is a sly devil, isn't he? Well. (laughs) All this time, we've been treating him like a lit motif magpie of sorts, and he's been cooking up this long-term story in the background of the saga. Well, maybe. Maybe. I'm going to give him a third of a point for that. <laughs> I did have to go outside the saga for this information, so there's a chance it slipped by the author as well. <laughs> uh, now, as we said in Kjalnasinga Saga, immigrants to Iceland tended to group together based on who they'd known in the old country. But, I mean, hey, if we, even if we ignore all that, Thorgils is married to the niece of Flossie the Burner, which is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right, so now that we've got all that, let's get to the rest of this part of the story. Mm-hmm. There's a man named Sordli in the area who's got a bit of a crush on Thori's cousin Gudrun, but mm. Gudrun, her brothers, the Jostinsons, remember, don't like Sordli at all. And this is going to sound a lot like the uh, the story of Gisli Saga. Yeah. And when he refuses to stop visiting her, Cole Jostinson lies in wait for him, ambushes him, and kills him in single combat. This does feel like we're just rewinding and playing the same scene over and over again. Yes, I think we can say that we're back to our author playing Motif Bingo again. Very much so. Uh, But each of these suitor-killing episodes does end differently. So in this case, Cole runs to Thore's new home with Thorgils and asks for protection from the killing. Thore hides him, and that night she convinces Thorgils to help support her cousin. 
So you're making this sound like it's no biggie, just a bit of legal support between in-laws. Mm-hmm. But Sorley had powerful friends in the region, very powerful, in fact. Mm-hmm. His chieftain and friend is Oskrim Elidegrimsen, <laughs> Njal Thorgerson's very good friend and the father-in-law of Helgi Nielsen. Yeah, Osgrim's a seriously heavy hitter in the South, which means that oh, yeah. Cole has just bitten off a lot more than he can chew. Uh, fortunately for him, Thorgils steps in to support him. But unfortunately, although Thorgils is able to protect Cole's farm and livestock, he can't do anything about the legal system, and Osgrim is able to get Cole outlawed for the slaying of Sorley. I mean, it's not surprising. Osgrim isn't just a friend of Njal Thorgerson. He's the father of Njal's protege-in-law. Thorhall Asgrimson. Now, getting Cole outlawed is like swatting a fly with a Buick. <laughs> uh, now, of course, uh, a sentence of outlawry in Iceland is worth nothing without the muscle to back it up. Quite uh, right. Thorgils and Cole ride everywhere together, but they act as if they've heard nothing about the lawsuit or the outlawry. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're going to get away with it at first. Yes, at first. Yeah, that, that, that never bodes well. Yeah. The problem is that this sort of thing tends to cause unrest in the district. No one is sure what's happening, or whether violence is likely to break out, or why Cole is still around. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. And and this just keeps on that way, until the day that Thorgils and his foreman Svart ride to a horse fight. Everyone at the gathering is having a good time, and even though Askrim and Thorgils are both there, no one causes any trouble. In fact, Oskrim and Svartz have a particularly good time and spend quite a while chatting with one another. Oh, that's not at all suspicious. What? No. Why would that be suspicious? I'm sure Thorgils is fine with this. Well, sure. It's nice that Svartz getting to know people. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, on the <laughs> ride home, and this might sound familiar, uh-huh. Svartz begins to lag behind Thorgils. Uh, of course he does. Yes, and, and then Svartz swings his axe at Thorgils. Of course he does. Or at where Thorgils had been, because he's since jumped off his horse, avoided the blow, and now drags Svart down off of his horse onto the ground. Yeah, Svart's not really cut out for being an assassin. He no. immediately confesses to having been bribed by Asgrim, and even shows Thorgils the money bag he was given for the job. Well, doesn't the money bag try to fall out of his pocket? No, he, he kind of exposes it. Uh, okay. And then he admits to stealing pies from his neighbor's wind, wind sill. Uh, no, he does not. And oh, and he cheated in a game of rock, paper, scissors once when he was a kid. That's yeah, about a third of that is true. <laughs> I don't think any. Yeah, the, the part about Svart being a lousy assassin is quite fair. But that's not going to be a problem anymore because Thorgils kills him on the spot. Right. Uh, which, by the way, is also a bit of a problem. I mean, Thorgils has Svart singing like a canary, but there yeah. aren't any witnesses. So Thorgils has the money bag, but he can't prove where it came from. Yeah, and this is a particular kind of story logic that works in, say, an 80s action movie. (laughs) Kill the bad guys and everyone just accepts that everything you've done was for a good cause. Right. Um, Yeah, real life, and for that matter, good saga story logic tends to be a little more complicated than that. Yes, but not this saga. (laughs) (laughs) I just emphasize good, I think. So instead of having a confession and a corroborating witness, Thorgils has a money pouch. Mm-hmm. And so he carries it around for a while and shows it to everyone he meets and asks if anyone knows whose it is. And mysteriously, <laughs> no one claims the pouch or the money inside. Yeah, you have to assume that everyone knows whose pouch it is and 
no one wants to say anything. I don't mean that it's like monogrammed with Asgrim's initials or anything, although that would be awesome. Uh, it's just the rumor mill would definitely make something of Asgrim and Svart hanging out at the horse fight together right before Svart makes an assassination yeah. attempt. Uh, you know, I take back what I said earlier. This is awkward as hell, but it's kind of a funny way to drag Asgrim's reputation through the mud a little bit. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to get a lot more about this story at this moment because Thorgils has another problem to solve. Part 8. A Thor Loser. (laughs) That is so awful. I mean, it's terrible, but... It's it's an approved joke by the International Punsters Union. Besides, it's, uh, it's on tape now. Um, I, I really like it. Does that make me a bad person? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I assume somebody did. <laughs> okay, so, uh, some time has passed while Thordils was away, and his return to Iceland coincides with another arrival on the island. Christianity. Ah, yes, we're at the end of the 10th century now in this story, when the real concentrated effort to convert the Icelanders is being made by missionaries from Norway. And Thorgils is among the first, conveniently, to convert to the new faith. Right. Now, at the time, this would have been a contentious issue. And early converts stood to make powerful enemies among the pagan faction. Mm -hmm. But this text is written more than 300 years later, when conversion is celebrated. So the author and audience approve, at least tacitly, of Thorgils embracing Christianity. Oh, yes. But there's still a vestige of that idea of powerful pagan enemies. Mm Mm-hmm. In turning away from the pagan gods, Thorgils has made an enemy of his namesake, Thor. Uh-huh. And the thunder god is not pleased by puny humans who reject him. Right. Now, this is our first conversion narrative that actually features one of the Asir. Uh, one night after Thorgils converts, he has a dream of Thor. He dreams a and lot. Thor, he does dream a lot. Uh and in this dream, Thor is not pleased. Uh, hey, do you want to be Thor or Thorgils? Uh, you should probably be Thor. I think you've already oh, I, established I, a voice for him. Uh, did I? What was my voice for him? At our uh, uh, talk in at Seminole State last year. Yes. <laughs> I believe you established a name for a voice for Thor. Can you refresh my memory? Uh, it was something along the lines of, Father! <laughs> oh, yes. I- Yes, it I was, cannot uh, sit on the seat that you hold. It was uh, a bit of Matthew Barry <laughs> Is from that what the it, was? IT crowd. Yes, yes, I, I'm, oh, I'm right. with you now. <laughs> you have done me wrong. <laughs> you picked out the worst you had for me and threw the silver that was mine into a stinking pond. I will pay you back for that. God will help me, and I am happy that our fellowship is over. See, that's sassy talk for a man being confronted by an actual god. Well, it's in his dreams. I mean, uh, besides, it's not going to go unanswered. I mean, the next day, uh, Thorgils finds his prize boar dead. Yes, and, and presumably a hammer sigil carved into its side with a lightning bolt. Pow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or possibly chariot tread marks. Yeah. Uh, either way, this is a fairly petty bit of revenge from the Thunder God. <laughs> and uh, Thorgils knows how to respond to pettiness. With more pettiness? Absolutely. He refuses to let anyone eat the Thor-roasted pork, and instead has the <laughs> boar buried by an abandoned hut on the outskirts of his property. You show Thor, Thorgils. Yeah. 
So, well, actually, this might be a smart move. If you remember way back in Eric the Red's saga, Thor sent a dead whale in answer to pagan prayers, but it made everyone sick. Right. Uh, now, from the perspective of the saga's Christian audience, that makes sense. Right? I mean, the, the covenant of body and blood of Christ is healing, but meat or blood from a pagan god would be tainted and sickening. Yes. That's reasonable enough. Uh, but it's not the end of the story. Thor returns the following night. Return to me. I can snuff you out as easily as I did your precious pig. Do what you wish. God will prevail. Ah, uh, mm. well, I'll kill off more of your livestock. Eh? Mm. I don't care about that. <laughs> the, uh, I think the nya-nya-nya-nya is strictly implied. Uh, and sure enough, in the morning, Thorgil's old ox dies. Yes, it's not a great sign for Thor, though. I mean, mm. the first night he smites a boar, the second night he's killing off a geriatric cow. I mean, <laughs> I mean that was probably on its way to becoming a fairly tough steak already. So <laughs> you know, what is yeah. Thor? I mean, he's about three days away from stepping on ants. Yeah, it's not impressive. Thor looks It foolish. gets worse. Uh, on the third night, Thorgil decides to stay up all night with his livestock. Mm-hmm. And when he returns in the morning, he's black and blue all over, apparently from fighting Thor. Yes, but the livestock all survive, and that mm-hmm. implies that Thorgil's won the fight with Thor. And and after that, the, the attacks stop. Thorgil's mm-hmm. isn't done with visions of Thor, but there is a long hiatus. For the record, I'm done with the visions. Yeah, uh, I'm done with the voice. I don't feel satisfied with Thor's voice. Yeah, well, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we have to talk about these visions that keep cropping up in this saga. You know, I had a dream last night that you were going to delay our progress unnecessarily <laughs> in this recording. And now here we are. Yeah, it's eerie, isn't it? Yeah, do you have uh, a, a ring or a sword for me? I don't. <laughs> Damn it. What I have instead for you is a dry discourse on the history of dream visions. <laughs> oh, no. Really? Uh, so. I mean, we've had a lot of prophecies in the saga already. I mean, we, you know, I mean, you go back way to uh, uh, when Otley predicted that his son would avenge him. Yeah, could uh, we could we, we maybe promise a saga brief that we never really do and just move forward? Oh, that'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? Would um, <laughs> uh, but we have. I mean, you know, this whole saga is really about this. I feel like we kind of are doing it right now. Yeah, uh, from Otley predicting his son's re- avenging him to Helgi Olafson's. Mother telling him that killing Thorgrim Scarleg would kill him, and moments like that. Yeah. But th- those aren't really prophecies, are they? I mean, they're, they're reasonable predictions of what might happen, right? That's exactly where I'm going with this. The prophecy function in this saga is repurposed and made what I would call a more prosaic part of the story. Mm, okay. And Thor stuff might obscure that if we're not paying attention. See, this podcast needs an alert sound. Whenever one of us makes a sharp left turn into a scholarly deep dive, right? Like a submarine horn or something to let people know this is happening? I prefer to sneak up on people. Uh, Oh, okay. You're an academic ninja. Yes, right. That's right. Uh, I'm the academic Spanish Inquisition. Uh, Nobody expects. No, go ahead. So Margaret Jeffrey made the point that these dream visions aren't prophecies either. They're just threats. Hmm. Uh, Thor isn't saying that a bad journey is foreseen or that Thorgil's pig is doomed. He's saying that he, Thor, will do these things unless he's bribed with Thorgil's worship. So you're quoting Margaret Jeffrey. <laughs> so you're going into the OG scholarship there. Like, 
Way back. That's right. Original gods. Uh, well, there isn't a there isn't a ton written on this saga, and we uh, we gather our harvest where we may. Yes. Well, the Thor dreams are also working as a sort of allegory. I mean, if mm-hmm. we think of them as temptations to turn to Thor instead of threats. Right. So Knut Leistall, see, I researched myself. Um, there you go. Uh, Knut Leistall, who's another scholar from way back, argued that these scenes are meant as an echo of Christ's temptation in the desert mm-hmm. um, and probably reflect a folk tradition. And that's a real stretch, but that's what he it said. is. So we're connecting oral legends around the conversion with an imitation of Christ's temptation now. Possibly, yes. Although it's always easy to wave a hand at oral legends. Just a of course it is. Um, yeah. We have to be careful about them, but that doesn't mean they don't influence the written record. All right. So while we've been talking, quite a long time passes in the saga. Are you dragging us back to the topic at hand? Uh, all right. To. So Thorgils and Thori have settled down, are successful farmers, and have a daughter named Thorny, who is eight years old when we pick up the story again. Ah, yes. Thorny. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to see more of her later. And the lovely Thorny. I think she's fantastic. Can, can we just say that this is a that Thorny is an odd choice of name for the daughter of a man who has rejected Thor? It is. I mean, she's married to a woman with Thor's name in it. And then she has they have a kid with Thor's name in it. I know. An odd choice for a Christian. Shouldn't he just be walking around calling himself Gil now? <laughs> so over the years, there's a gentleman... Mm-hmm. A fine gentleman named oh, yes. Eric the Red. Um, and he has on multiple occasions invited Thorgils to join him in Greenland. Now, uh, in the first episode on this saga, I thought we established that these two hated each other. Well, I mean, they're not besties or anything, but Eric <laughs> is looking for people to help grow the new settlement. And Thorgils is a man of importance. So, Yeah, now this this smacks of an Everglades timeshare level of scam. Uh, and <laughs> anyway, Thorgils. Hey, there. <laughs> Thorgils ignores the invitations. Uh, and given what we read in Eric's saga about all the recurrent problems of disease and famine in Greenland, it's hard to blame him. Well, uh, he doesn't know about all that yet. I mean, I, but we do. Uh, but then Thorgils' son Thorleif arrives from Norway. And after a short conversation between them that isn't reported, Thorgils changes his mind and decides that he... Thorgir and his new family should all move to Erikstadr in Greenland. That is a hell of a turnaround. It really is. And it's it's exactly that abrupt in the text. So best of luck trying to decide why he chooses to go. Yeah. Well, he's heard good things about the, the surfing off the coast of Greenland. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to go with midlife crisis. Uh-huh. Sure. Now, a lot of time has passed. So... Uh, Thorgil's son Thorsten is 20 years old at this point. Right? This is the baby that he left behind in Norway in Salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Thorgil's is around 40? Yeah, so 20 years passed just then. Yep, uh, about that. Yeah, you can wow. you can insert your preferred time jump visual metaphor of choice. So you can uh, imagine clock hands whirring wildly, a DeLorean vanishing in a flaming peel-out. <laughs> yeah, telephone booth <laughs> traversing the fourth dimension, TARDIS or Bill and Ted, you can take your pick, whichever. Uh, a pastoral poem with a motif of the changing seasons. Vivaldi's Four Seasons. That's not a visual metaphor. <laughs> Written in musical notation is what I was going to say next. It all works beautifully. Sure. Uh 
Well, Thorgils ignores the Tardises and clocks whizzing by. Is Tardises it, or Tardises? I don't actually know if there is such a thing as a plural of that, so hmm. I can't tell you. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there knows this and is screaming at their <laughs> podcast device. <laughs> I have of choice no right doubt now. about that. Uh, please feel free to let us know uh, what the plural of Tardis is. Um, so, uh, anyway, Thorgils announces his intention to sail to Greenland. Yes. Well, it does seem like everyone in the neighborhood was just waiting for him to make the announcement. I mean, suddenly everyone wants to go with him. And besides Thorgils, Thori, their daughter Thorny, and Thorleaf, ten of Thorgils' servants are going along, and he's also taking two slaves, Snackle and Ozur, and his farm's foreman, Thorar, Thorarin. Uh, and besides all of them, Thori's entire foster family is going along, and Jolstein and Thorgerd, her foster parents, uh, along with Cole and Starketh Jolstinson, and Guthrun, Jolstein's daughter, and 12 of Jolstein's men, and a young boy of Thorgerd's. Okay, all told, I was trying to keep track of that, uh, that's 35 people. Have I got well, that right? Well, I know you weren't keeping track of that when I said it, but that you looked in the saga and were calculating. Well. Yes, it's a lot of people. <laughs> Pull and back the curtain, why don't you? It is important for our body count eventually. So mm-hmm. in two episodes right. when we get to the judgments, remember mm-hmm. that number. That's ominous. <laughs> well, uh, foreshadowing. The, the thing is, there are 35 people, but not everyone is going to make it onto the ship. It's a nice ship, by the way. Thorgil buys it specially for the journey. Yeah, is this another midlife crisis thing? I mean, he's buying a sporty ship with a convertible top and candy mm-hmm. apple red paint job and bitchin' flames on the sides. Is he getting <laughs> hair plugs? No. It's just a big ship. Oh, uh, okay. it's a huge ship, in fact, with room for everyone and their livestock, since they're planning on establishing a farm in Greenland. Yeah. But while they're getting the ship ready and waiting for favorable winds... Thorgils and Thori's daughter Thorny falls sick. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, she's not fatally ill, but she's still bedridden when the winds turn and it's time to go. Yeah, it's a prickly situation. It, well, it would be if Thorgils had ever shown the least inclination to give a damn about his offspring. Uh, but rather than disrupt the entire voyage, Thorgils leaves Thorny in the household of his friend Thorod to be fostered. Oh, he loves takes le- sail. He loves leaving kids with someone else, doesn't he? He, he does. He does. It's so much easier than actually caring about them. Yes. Uh, so Thorgils ends up sailing away with 34 people, not 35. Ah, well, that's a big difference. Poor yeah. Thorny, though. I have to say, pretty shoddy behavior from Thorgils to abandon her, like he did with Thorley. I wonder if Thorley's right. watching this whole situation and be like, so familiar. I, you know, it actually occurred to me that you know you'd think he'd like want to take Thorny aside. This is sort of his sister, and say, you know, I know he does this. It works out okay. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you're better off without him. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you but you could make the argument in this case that Thorgils has a responsibility to the rest of the people who have already sold their farms, packed all their belongings, and are waiting for this trip. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I I agree with you. And as we said, this is not the first time we've seen him abandon a kid. Yeah, true. And Thorgils is not father of the year material. So the the 34 men and women sail for Greenland, leaving Thorny behind. But it's not long before everyone aboard is wishing they'd been left behind. Yeah, yeah. Thorgils is still having the angry Thor dreams. And now Thor is threatening to wreck the ship if Thorgils doesn't return to pagan worship. And when Thorgil refuses, very stubbornly, the ship is becalmed and spends weeks bobbing around in the ocean currents. And pretty soon, 
others on the ship suggest maybe they should make a sacrifice to Thor who helps in journeys hey, like this. Just a just a wee little sacrifice? Uh, something. Hey! How about we sacrifice a fish? Can we spare a fish? No, no, no. Thorgils refuses to allow uh, any kind of sacrifice. Yeah, of course he does. And Thor is clearly losing patience. I can see how faithful you were to me when your men wanted to call on me. I think since we've been going back. Right? Oh, right. Yeah, you should yeah. be doing this. Sorry. Yeah. I can see how faithful you were to me when your men wanted to call on me. Oh, you're back again? I'll tell you what. You will reach harbor in seven nights if you return to me. Not going to happen. Even if we die out here, I will not return to you. Hmm. Well, if you won't worship me, then return to me what is mine. Right. Yeah, so so Thor's talking about an ox that Thorgils has among his livestock. Mm-hmm. It seems that Thorgils dedicated the ox to Thor when it was born. Big sure. mistake. <laughs> so he decides that that's fair enough. Thorgird, Jolstin's wife, points out that they're short of food and could really use an ox if Thorgils is planning <laughs> on killing it anyway. But Thorgils has the ox pushed overboard, which is... Um, I mean, I, I guess that's how you return things to Thor on the open ocean, but it seems a little odd. I mean, if it's not, Thorgil's just drowned Thorgil, uh, Thor's cow, right. which isn't great for him. No, I mean, the method seems fine, uh, it turns out. But the, the whole thing, once again, makes Thor look pretty petty. It, it's basically, well, if we're breaking up, can I at least have my stuff back? Thor has spoken! <laughs> Thor? <laughs> Thor has spoken. So... At this point, and I should, it's got to be clear, I got to make it clear here. This cow was not sacrificed to Thor or even really returned to Thor. This is a rejection of the even possibility of giving Thor what he wants. We're going to throw it overboard rather than use it in the way that he wants, right? So at this point, most of the crew is too weak or seasick to be of much use. They're all starving. And Thorgils and his foreman Thorarin are doing most of the work on board. And the ship eventually does reach Greenland just before winter. But the problems aren't over yet. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, this is yet another example of this family's poor seamanship. The ship runs into rocks and glaciers offshore, gets caught and eventually crushed, and then cracks in half. Yes, and Thorgils really needs to learn to stay on dry land. <laughs> Not everyone is cut out for the life at sea, and Thorgils. I, I think it's mostly getting off the sea that's the problem. They keep <laughs> yeah. crashing right offshore. Uh, so everyone piles into a rowboat they've got on board, and they're able to save most of the livestock, but that's it. Some bits of the broken ship wash ashore, but the entire party, 34 people, are trapped in a frozen glacial bay at the start of winter with no shelter and little food in Greenland. Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine how things could get much worse. Yes. Well, uh, Thori's pregnant. Oh, boy. Part 9. The Greenland Horrors. The Horrors. <laughs> the Horrors. You must make a friend of horror. All right, so we've got 34 men, women, 
and children and some livestock. A little bit of livestock. Suddenly stranded on a beach somewhere in Greenland. Mm -hmm. It's nearly winter and Thori is pregnant. This is not a good situation. Side note, she's been pregnant throughout this month's long sailabout in the North Atlantic. Well, she was probably confused. Am I seasick or is this uh, morning sickness? <laughs> I'm just saying, quite pretty damned impressive. Yeah. So she's probably glad to be on land finally, mm-hmm. no matter where that is. And most of the group is disoriented. And so Thorgils and his foreman, Thorarin, take charge of the situation. Well, it's quite a situation. It's a uh, horrible situation. Yeah. Now, they're able to build a crude house using salvage from the ship and some local materials. And they include a central wall dividing the house into two parts. Like a Fighting Roommates episode of a sitcom or something? No, no. More like Thorgils and Jostin want to keep their authority and their household separate. Ah, well, that sounds like a sitcom premise to me. We just got to let yeah. it evolve a no, little bit. Actually, it, uh, it sounds like an attempt to, def- to avoid some disputes. Uh, oh, yes, are, definitely. There are multiple hints that Jostin's household are still practicing pagans. Uh-oh. Uh, remember, Thor said the people on the ship wanted to call on him, and Thorgils wouldn't allow it. And Thorgils is careful to tell his group to hold well to their faith. And they're quiet and well-behaved in the evenings. Oh, such good Christians. Uh, and Yossin's men are louder and more more boisterous. Mm-hmm. So the author tells us, It is told that Yostin and his men behaved riotously and played rowdy games at night. <laughs> hmm. He's clearly pretty scandalized by their behavior. Well, I mean, rowdy games, Andy. A bit of uh, pinch and grab, uh, you know, a little bit of goosing I was, I was here thinking, and there. I was thinking more of a game of risk with maybe like five bucks per country. <laughs> oh, well, gambling. Oh, and Thorgerd, Jostein's wife, wanted to save the bull dedicated to Thor. So there, there's I mean, she right wanted attention. to eat it, but yeah. Uh, well, still. Although, actually, eating the meat after sacrificing the animal is an accepted practice. So Absolutely, it's possible yeah. she wanted to do both. Sure. So we've got Christians on one side of the house and mm-hmm. pagans on the other. I wonder maybe. if any, any tensions will arise. Right. I mean, we should say we are making some conjectures here. But for the purposes of the uh, wacky sitcom, sure, let's go with it. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the two groups divide up the rest of the salvage, which includes some flour and basic foods. But no forage was saved for the animals, and so most of the livestock dies. Well, I mean, that can solve the uh, food problem for a while, at least. Yeah. Uh, but only in the short term. you got to eat that meat quickly. Right. And without animals to provide milk, the company's going to be in trouble quite soon. Right. Now, both groups begin to hunt and fish for food. Thorgill's side has better luck, but neither side is doing all that well. And then, just before midwinter, Thore gives birth to a baby boy. They uh-huh. name him Thorfinn. Uh, but Thori has a difficult labor and has a hard time regaining her strength on the meager food available. Yeah, that sounds ominous. And meanwhile, mm. on the day after Christmas... Boxing Day? Or St. <laughs> Stephen's Day, if you prefer. Yeah, thank you for that. Also the first day of Kwanzaa. And, uh, and Lars Ulrich's birthday, which I had forgotten until just now. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, happy birthday, Lars. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the day after Christmas, when everyone has gone to bed, there's a... A knock, knock, knocking at the door of the house. Knocking at the door in the middle of winter on an isolated beach where they're shipwrecked. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is either good news or very, very bad news. Well, one of Yostein's men is apparently an optimist, and he jumps up and says, Oh, that'll be some good news. <laughs> <laughs> and goes outside. Oh, this is not going to be good news, is it? Yeah, well, he immediately goes stark raving mad, spends the rest of the night <laughs> shrieking insanely, and dies in the morning. Oh, bad news. Very, very bad news. <laughs> oh, the fool. Uh, this is the start of the Greenland horrors, by the way. Right. Uh, something malignant has found the survivors. Mm-hmm. And now that it's found them, it won't let go. Yeah, this sounds like a movie. Why isn't this a movie? Yeah, I struggled with that too, actually. There's no way to explain what's happening here without it sounding like a horror film. Yes, it's I mean, The only consolation, I have to say, is that it would be an awesome horror film. Yeah, much better than the saga. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the next night, another of Jostein's men wakes up and steps outside the house. He sees the man who died the night before running at him out of the dark. Oh, my which, God. Can you imagine this scene? <laughs> right? I mean, seriously. He, he pokes his head out the door and sees the guy who died the night before like running at him, at him right. out of the dark. Oh, my God. So he then goes mad. But he doesn't die right away. Well, at least it doesn't seem like he does. I mean, this next bit is a little confused. Oh, so much of it's confused. Uh, so the following day, a sickness sweeps through Jostein's side of the house. And six of Jostein's men die. And then Jostein himself dies. Right. Now, let's remember, it's the middle of winter. All the corpses are buried in scratch graves in the gravel by the water because mm-hmm. the survivors don't have the tools for proper digging and the ground is frozen. That's right. And it's only a few days before that starts to be a problem mm-hmm. because the dead, as they do, begin to rise from their graves and walk around outside the house at night. Right, And those inside can see and hear them out there, scraping their feet on the gravel. And I assume dragging their fingernails on the walls. You made that last part up. But it's perfect because this is Halloween season. I mean, it's clearly implied, right? Enjoy this for Halloween, people. Uh, Now, the combination of illness and terror continues to kill people until all of Jostein's men are dead. Thorgerd, Jostein's wife, and Thorarin are the last to die. Right. And the text says that Thorarin was the last to die. That's a quote. Mm Mm-hmm. But this isn't Thorarin, Thorgil's foreman, is it? No, this is a different Thorarin. Um, remember, See, it's we confusing. mentioned right. We mentioned a little while back that Jostein and Thorgird had a younger son. His name is also Thorarin. Uh, so the boy Thorarin dies, the youngest oh, okay. of their children. Uh, so now fifteen people have died altogether, and only the three adult children of Jostein, Cole, uh, Starkov, and Gudrun are left from his side of the house. Yes, but the hauntings continue. And now all of the dead are focusing their attack on Thorgils. Mm -hmm. One night, they break into the house and take over the side where they had lived. And now the survivors are listening to the dead roaming around inside Uh, the house. Okay, somebody get John Carpenter on the phone. I mean, screw remakes of The Thing. This is the movie he should be making. Yes, it's it's pretty terrifying. Just imagine yourself stranded in the middle of nowhere in yep. Greenland. You have built yourself a house of some right. kind it's to live in and survive. House. And in the other room are all the people that <laughs> used to live there, but they're dead, but now they're alive again and just wandering right. around. And occasionally they run at you from the darkness shrieking. <laughs> oh my God, it's horrible. 
So eventually Thorgils has to use most of their precious supply of wood to burn the bodies of the dead and put a stop to the hauntings. Right. And the winter then comes to an end. But the 19 survivors, I mean, actually well, it's 20 survivors right, now with the right. birth of young Thorfinn. Yeah, Thori still hasn't recovered fully, but she and Thorfinn are both alive. Yes, and Thorfinn's the infant son of Thorgils right. and Thori, right? So the pack ice is still too thick to attempt an escape by sea. Um, and I don't even, do they have a boat? Do they build a boat? They got that little tiny rowboat. Oh, it's terrible. So even in the summer, right? So the survivors mm. focus on collecting resources to last another winter. Oh, mm. it's so depressing. A year goes by yep. like this. And during the second winter, Guthrun, Jostein's daughter, finally dies. Yeah, and there's there's another horrible detail here. Mm. Uh, to keep her corpse from restarting the hauntings, Thorgils has to bury her under his bed. Oh, so God. he gets to spend the rest of the winter knowing that's under his mattress. How does that work? Exactly. <laughs> well, he his his bed keeps her down. Couldn't he just burn her body? Like? I, well, what do they have left to burn? Her body? <laughs> I don't know. People are not That's combustible. Pretty, you know that. I don't know. I would sacrifice the boat that I have to burn that rather than put it under my bed. But uh, yeah, so spring comes again. But the pack ice is thicker than ever. So mm. Thorgils continues to hunt with the Jostinsons, and Thorarin, with the help of two slaves named Snackle and Olzor, has been overseeing Thorgils' men each day as they fish. But as the stranded survivors confront the possibility of a third year trapped on this haunted beach, their spirits, not surprisingly, mm. get lower and lower. Well, not everyone, though. Thori's finally got her strength back, and she's had a good dream. A dream, you say? A uh, dream again. Uh, she tells Thorgils about it. I have seen a beautiful land full of bright, shining people. Uh-oh. I think we are soon to be delivered from these troubles. Oh, no. Well, he says, Your dream is true, but it's not unlikely that it means the other world. You will have good things in store for you, and the saints will help you. Yeah, but Thori is insistent that her dream is good and means there's a way out of their prison. Nope. Yeah, well, so, well, now, come on. So on a clear day, Thorgils agrees to climb up onto the nearby glacier to see if the ice has been breaking up at all. Well, Thorgils takes his son Thorleif and Cole and Starkath Jostensen along with him, and he leaves Thorarin, the foreman, in charge of the camp. Trusty Thorarin! Mm-hmm. So the men will continue to fish. Right. Now, Thorgils' party is away till early afternoon, and when they return, the weather is turning bad. Yeah. They immediately realize something is wrong. It's almost like the weather is connected to the a little bit. events of the saga. Uh, it's, hmm. it's almost like this author is a bit ham-fisted when it comes to establishing mood and <laughs> context. It <laughs> uh, was a so, dark and stormy night. Right. Uh, so their first clue that something's off is that the small boat is gone. Uh, and when they reach the house, all the chests and provisions are missing. And so are the people. Well... Not all the people. Right. On the bright side, there is a gurgling noise coming from Thori's bed. Oh, good. And when they rush over, they find her dead and covered in blood. With the toddler, Thorfinn, still trying to suck milk from her breast. Oh, we warned you that this saga got a little dark, folks. 
I mean, this is honestly, this is actually brutal. It's a little hard to describe something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the most emo- emotionally crushing moment in this entire saga. And Thorgils is overcome with sorrow. Yeah. Nothing about the crime scene here, for lack of a better term, makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. The absence of any other bodies means that some or all of the 12 men and slaves and Thorarin the foreman must have suddenly decided to abandon the camp and try for escape on their own. Right, but killing Thori and leaving the baby alive, it doesn't seem to fit with that. Yeah, well, there is a logic to it if you're a completely heartless bastard, right? True. Yeah, no, there is one thing it does, which is eliminate the possibility of Thorgils chasing after them. Because now he has a child to take care of. And for once, he can't abandon it and leave it with somebody else. No, no, but he's lost his wife, and without her milk, it's not clear whether the baby can survive. Okay, pause there. Because without context, this next part is going to sound a little out there. Yeah. Well, I think we need to explain what happens first. Okay. So Thorgils watches over the boy that night and finally decides that there's only one thing to do. He says, first I will take this step and cut my nipples. And he does. Oh. And at first he bleeds, but then a clear liquid dribbles out. Mm-hmm. It's a mixture of blood and milk is what mm. we're meant to think here. And he keeps going, and after that, he he eventually gets milk to flow from his breast. Mm-hmm. And with that milk, he nurses the boy. Yeah, we said it was going to be a little strange. Uh, so the question here isn't necessarily whether this is historically factual. Uh, I think Probably we left not. off trying to make historical sense of this saga quite a while ago. Yeah, right. It's a motif grab, right? So right. the question is, what kind of motif is this one? Well... I mean, it's got links to humoral medicine. I know that. Um, for those who don't know, uh, medieval and Renaissance ideas about bodily humors sometimes led to ideas about one sex bodies and the possibility that male and female characteristics were inessential to bodily wholeness. Hmm. Uh, I've done a little bit of reading on intersex figures in medieval context. It's really interesting stuff, actually. Uh, the upshot is that the idea was that men and women were made essentially the same sort of one kind of body and then sex characteristics were a kind of variation on that one body okay. rather than being two fundamentally different bodies. Uh, if anyone's interested in this stuff, by the way, I recommend reading uh, Barbara Orland's essay, uh, Why Could Early Modern Men Lactate? Uh, or the 2018 issue of the journal Post Medieval on medieval intersex figures. Yeah, and there, there are a few pieces of art showing male lactation, mm-hmm. um, not to, you know, what we have with this episode Um, but there's a minor (laughs) literary and religious textual tradition as well Uh, for example the Talmud includes a story of a poor man who miraculously produces milk for his children Mm. and then medieval writers sometimes linked blood and breast milk just as this author does uh, usually the link is made in discussing Christ's blood as a nurturing fluid. Right. Um, and, of course, Carolyn Walker Bynum uh, talks about this in her book, Jesus as Mother. Yeah, we should really put up uh, information about this stuff on the website. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, um, this is really, it's just I a didn't handful. mean that I would do it. <laughs> I, I'm aware. I know how this works. But this is just really just a handful of recommendations for a little light scholarly reading. Um, the primary literature is worth reading up on its own. Oh, um, this isn't medieval, but I found a reference in Anna Karenina to an Englishman who suckles a baby to keep it alive during an ocean-crossing voyage. Really? Yeah. Okay, so, so see, obviously there is a tradition. 
And I'm not totally confident about the connection to Christ, but given how much of Thorgill's story is tied up in his conversion, and given the fact that he is related or he's mm. the, the progenitor of what <laughs> will become Bishop Thorlach. Right, right, true. You know, I'm not willing to rule out the idea that yeah. this is a direct, this is a miracle. This should be seen right. as a miracle, and this is connected to uh, Christ himself. Sure. And something else about this, uh, leaving aside the cultural tradition for the moment, it is actually possible, like physiologically, for men to lactate. Hmm. I spent I spent a very entertaining evening a week ago learning a bit about this. Stop right there. <laughs> you just said, it's possible for men to lactate, and then you said, I spent a very entertaining evening a week ago. <laughs> Tell us more, John. What did you uh, do that evening? Uh, well, I looked for information about it on the internet. <laughs> oh, that's kind of disappointing. But uh, <laughs> your internet search history is now officially weirder than mine. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I read just a few articles. Uh, I found things in Scientific American, Discover, and a few medical journals that cover this. And they universally agree that male lactation is possible. And it's actually not as unusual as some people might think. So, I mean, I guess that's not that surprising. I mean, as you were saying, uh, the human body doesn't commit to its sex characteristics until relatively late in the gestational process. Mm -hmm. So men have the basic glands and ducts required, according to my own research. Um, But it's a really, really latent ability. I've tweaked my nipples so many times and I've never (laughs) had a drop of milk come out. Uh, Now, some people including another number of anthropologists, have argued that lactation is something that men can do under the right circumstances. Uh, and that includes a few reports of men in more or less Thorgill's position, interestingly. Uh, just recently in 2002, a Sri Lankan man was reported to have breastfed his babies after his wife died in childbirth. Uh, in 1978, the medical similar. anthropologist... Yeah. So... Uh, the, the anthropologist Dana Raphael argued that male lactation was both possible and natural, that it was actually a function of the male body. Hmm. And in 1995, Jared Diamond wrote that it was possible for some men to lactate merely from, and I quote here, repeated mechanical stimulation of the nipples. Hmm. Where do I get a machine to do that? Well... <laughs> So, but that would mean that Thorgils might be going a bit overboard by slashing his nipples with a knife to start the milk flowing. <laughs> I mean, just uh, play with them a little bit, Thorgils. Everything will work out. Right. Give them a little tweak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, slicing your nipples sounds really painful. I'm not into uh, it. I'll tell you that much. W- oh. Now, not everyone agrees with Raphael and Diamond, I should say that. Uh, others have argued that although milk production is possible... It usually indicates an unusual biochemical circumstance, like a, a surge of prolactin, for example, the hormone that uh, triggers lactation. Yeah, so that, that's a pituitary gland thing, right? Right. So what we're talking about here is different from the normal range of hormonal levels in different people. Right. There's a number of biological bases for people having more or less of various hormones, and sex, sex characteristics likewise vary from one body to another. Mm-hmm. This is entirely different from the normal continuum of human sex characteristics. Yeah. So we're talking about a situation like Thorgill's, a man mm-hmm. with typical male-identified body and sex characteristics deliberately triggering lactation in himself to nurse a child. Right. So it turns out that there are a number of ways to cause a surge of prolactin in the body. One is hormone injections, of course, which is not likely on the coast of Greenland when you're shipwrecked. 
But a tumor in the pituitary gland can also cause overproduction of prolactin in both men and women. And interestingly, there is one other circumstance that can lead to the body producing excess quantities of hormones. Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Being stranded on a beach in Greenland. I mean, yes, only on a Greenland beach. No, no. <laughs> but I mean, actually, sort of, sort of. Okay, well, wait. Is it starvation? Malnourishment? Yep. Yeah, excellent deduction, Holmes. Ten points to Hufflepuff and all that. Uh, <laughs> apparently, there were hundreds of cases of male lactation that were reported by survivors of POW or concentration camps during World War II. No way. Now, if I understand this correctly, glandular secretions are strongly affected by malnourishment. Right. So, you're, as soon as you're malnourished, your glandular secretions are going to go down. Your hormones will go down. Okay. But the liver function that removes hormones is also suppressed. Hmm. Now, when a malnourished person does receive a large amount of food, the glands kick back into operation faster than the liver does, resulting in hormone fluctuations. So theoretically, a man in Thorgill's position with unsteady food supplies and general malnourishment might conceivably have hormone surges that would cause numerous symptoms, including lactation. See... There are times when I really enjoy what we do for a living here. <laughs> I, mean, I can't believe we just went down this rabbit hole. So you're saying that the circumstances of this saga mean that Thorgil's breastfeeding his child isn't actually that unlikely. Okay, well, no, I, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the brakes on here. I can assure you, I have spent only a very little time so far researching this whole thing. And I'm more than willing to be educated on the subject. If we have any listeners who know more about this. Uh, but yeah, no, if this were a Mythbusters episode, I'd have to call this plausible. Okay, now, while that was a somewhat lengthy digression, I think it was well worth it. <laughs> um, but we are going to have to leave Thorgils and the other survivors for now. Mm. Abandoned and betrayed by their men, mourning the death of Thori, trying to care for a toddler and desperate to find some way to escape their isolated shoreline prison. Yeah, and presumably they're eager to track down the men who betrayed them and left them to die. They don't even know uh, who did it, right? They don't know if Thorarin led it or if the slaves overpowered him or what happened. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot they don't understand. And uh, I'm still trying not to think about that corpse under Thorgil's bed, by the way. It's still there, just laying there. <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe we haven't finished this saga yet, and there's not oh, that much left. Oh, believe it. We are trapped in Greenland, and the story's not over yet. Yeah. So next time, we will finish Floamana Saga. Floamana Saga. Floamana. Um, and we'll follow the story of how the surviving castaways escaped their shipwreck exile, and what happens when they return home to discover that life has gone on in their absence. Oh, oh no, I actually saw that movie. Helen Hunt has married the dentist, and the, uh, the Houston Oilers have moved to Tennessee. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't get that reference, and I'm not sure how they're connected to the saga, but okay. Um, before we go, we, we should uh, throw out a couple shout-outs for people who have been helping us out with this podcast. Uh, Rachel B. in particular recently signed on to be our official updater of past judgments for the blog site. Thank you, Rachel. She did a really nice job of bringing that section of our site up to date. And then we disappeared. Uh, yes. We promise, uh, Rachel, we'll make more work for you soon. 
Yes, uh, at least one update every couple of months. No, we're really grateful to you for all the help and for sprucing this place up a little. Yes, and of course we once again have a brilliant piece of original art from Matt Smith, a.k.a. Barbarian Lord, uh, to go along with the episode. This time around, Matt created one of the only images ever created of a Viking man (laughs) breastfeeding a baby. Quite remarkable. Uh, Yeah, one of the only. Are there others out there? Is this not the image? You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. To be honest, I, I did Google it. I didn't find right. any. There's a deviant but I, art thought, page somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I would cover our bases a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, you, you convinced me. Uh, I'll say it. Thanks to Matt Smith for crafting the most recent and only known picture, to my knowledge, of a Viking breastfeeding a baby. Well done, Matt. Well done indeed. Uh, if you haven't left a review of our podcast on your favorite podcatching service, uh, please think about doing that. I assume that if you've stuck with us through almost three hours and counting a flow of Monosaga, you're at least a little entertained by us. Or, Throw us a bone and review I us. Mean, there's, there's another possibility, which is that you're deeply asleep by now. In which oh. case, I hope your dreams are happy ones, despite the horrors of the last few chapters. If... You give us a review of the podcast. <laughs> we won't kill your pig. Uh, no, I was just going to say another episode, something that oh, could well. actually deliver. An episode of the Ragnarsons, coming mm. soon. <laughs> but yeah, no, the reviews uh, really do help to uh, get new listeners on the show. I mean, people are searching around, they see the reviews and see that it's a, a decent, a decent show. So yeah, if, you've not, uh, if you've not done it, please do it. If you have given us a review, thank you so very much. Um... And uh, we should thank Fjorns Hall for a uh, a lovely write up about Saga thing. On oh, his absolutely! Blog. Uh, that was really nice of him. Uh, please go and have it, have a look at that and check out what he's up to over there. Uh, he's producing a, a lot of really excellent work. Uh, and we ha- actually, now that we're on that subject, we haven't done a podcast shout out for a while. Uh, I wanted to thank Bree and Fry from Pontifax for using my beard as a measuring device to determine the forkedness of Pope Urban I's facial fur. Uh, <laughs> happy to be of service. Uh, if anyone hasn't tried out Pontifax, you should definitely go find their podcast. Uh, yes. It's it's one of those areas where, you know, you always think, like, I wish somebody would do all the popes, but nobody's actually crazy enough to do it. They're doing it. Uh, and while you're at it, check out the workaholics over at Totalis Rankium, Rob and Jamie who are making their way through the both the Roman emperors and the U.S. presidents simultaneously. It's it's unbelievable <laughs> Can you imagine? what they're doing. We can barely get our act together to record this once a month. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, and, of course, all of us were inspired to do our podcasts after listening to Rex Factor, the patriarch <laughs> of the Rex Factor family of podcasts. So Graham and Ali are starting up a new series soon on the queens and consorts of English history. So if you aren't caught up on their program, you should probably get to work on that. In the meantime, let us know what you think of all of this, whether you think we've been too hard on Thor in this episode, <laughs> or if there's anything you want cleared up in our next episode, just send us questions. Yeah, like uh, why this is taking so long, for instance. Well, I blame you, because this is not yeah, worth it. So do I, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can reach us on face- on our Facebook page, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter, at Saga Thing Pod, or on our WordPress blog page, www.sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can appear to us in a dream, threaten to kill us if we don't respond to your questions, and then pout when we refuse to give in. If it's good enough for the God of Thunder, it's good enough for you. All right, that's going to do it for now. We'll be back soon. And until then, 
Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Wait, what? Just just gives it to him? Yeah, and it's it's not even a thing. He's like, hey, hey, hey you you want this land this land over here, Morty? You, you can have it. I mean, it's nothing. It's it's yours. You can have it for free. And oh wow, that's wow. it. Wow, are, are you 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 you're, you're gonna go with the Rick impression? That was. <laughs> I can I can I can I can I could backtrack if you want. <laughs> Shouldn't have said Morty. Yeah, if I didn't was, say Morty. That was would, the problem. It, that's where it, it went. Been all right. That's where it went horribly, horribly yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah.